Anyway, Quebec was trying to say that you 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 needed to amend the constitution in order to recognize self-government, or you had to bring uh, the type of case, uh, you know, a, a litigation in court, and you couldn't. The federal government couldn't recognize this in legislation, and uh, the Supreme Court disagreed with that entirely and said, of course they can, and that's really key to this legislation. And this opens the door for all kinds of more legislation like this. Quay, Nin Deloise, Pam Palmiter, and I am the host of this show, The Warrior Life. I'm a lawyer, professor, author, and activist from Eel River Bar First Nation. And my motto is education for action on indigenous rights, social justice, and protecting the planet. On this podcast, you're going to get an education of a different kind. One that's enriched by the cultures, insights, and lived experiences of indigenous activists, land defenders, water protectors, all of those people on the ground defending our rights, as well as indigenous artists, lawyers, academics, and leaders of all kinds, all of whom are on the front lines of resistance, resurgence, and revitalization. Today's podcast is the recording of last week's live YouTube Q&A session that I hosted about the recent Supreme Court of Canada case that upheld the federal Indigenous child and family legislation. So stay tuned. This is going to be super informative. Welcome back. My name is Pam Palmiter, and today you are going to hear the live Q&A session that I hosted on YouTube with some of my favorite people, Cindy Blackstock, Naomi Metallic, and Mary TG. They're going to answer all of your questions, all about the recent Supreme Court of Canada case. So there's not much more I can say. Let's get right into it. Hello, everybody. Bonjour. My name is Pam Palmiter, and I am the host of this YouTube live session. And I am so honored to be here. I'm from Yorba Bar First Nation. And in case you don't know who I am, I'm a lawyer, don't me, a professor, an author, podcaster, and activist. Although, you know, you can just be advocate. I don't know what the difference is. But that being said, I am going to be joined by three amazing warrior women and we're going to be talking about the recent Supreme Court of Canada case that just came out on Friday. It's all the media is talking about. There's tons of questions all over social media and I've been gathering up your questions. Thank you for sending them and we're live. So if you join us live now or a little bit later, type up your question. We we want to help answer any questions you have about this because we have all the facts. So I'm going to bring on these amazing, wonderful people. First, we have Cindy Blackstock. Oh my goodness. She is one of my favorite people in the whole world. And I know I always tell her that, so I'm kind of a broken record, but she is just awesome. She heads up the First Nation Child Family Caring Society. Her and Spirit Bear are best friends. They travel the country helping to educate Canadians about fairness and justice and equality for First Nation kids and families. And I just love the work that she's done. And she'll be able to help 
answer some of your questions. And if I have it right, you're from the Geek Sand Nation, right, Cindy? That's right. Yeah. Nice. Okay. So we've got one Mi'kmaq and one Geek Sand so far. Yep. All right. We're going to bring on Mary TG. And she is doing phenomenal work. I have never had the honor of doing mm -hmm. an event with her. But here's the rule about doing events with me. Once you do it, now you've got to do more and more and more events. So <laughs> okay. you're hooked into this, Mary. And we're <laughs> so happy to have you here. And if I'm not mistaken, you're from the Gixan and Carrier Nations, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I feel very outnumbered. I've got two Gixan and one Mi'kmaq. So I better even this out. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I have the most amazing Mi'kmaq person ever, Naomi Metallic. Anyone who doesn't know her, and I'm sure everybody does, she's a phenomenal lawyer. She's done so many amazing things. She's been to the Supreme Court of Canada, and I haven't been to the Supreme Court of Canada. So I'm just like so in awe of everything she does. She's from Listigouche, and that's literally my first nation, Yorvar and Listy were like, 20 minutes away from each other. We're literally so close, just almost, almost like border, provincial border First Nations. Um, thank you for joining. And you too, Naomi. So you heard me talk about Mary. Once you do an event with me, you're in for life. Over. So <laughs> thank you all for being here. I'm really excited. And I can see people are lining up uh, live on YouTube. So that's great. Keep sending your questions once we get into the meat and bones of it. Um, and so, um, Cindy, I, I wanted to actually go to you because some people were saying, hey, where did this court case come from? I mean, not everybody follows the law, right? The law can be kind of boring and not everyone's on the media because the media can be a bit annoying sometimes. So some people are like, where did this come from? I never never heard of this. But this the issue in general has been a long time coming, hasn't it? It's been a really long time. I mean, you think about it, Pam. Um, you know, before colonialism, it was First Nations, Métis, and Inuit people looking after their own children with their own laws. And then part of the colonial thing was putting the Western laws on top of those First Nations, Métis, and Inuit children, and often that meant separating them. Use the law to remove kids from residential schools. Then the 60s scoop. Then we had the provincial child welfare laws that too often just were a mismatch for First Nations, Métis, and Inuit kids. And in they didn't get really at their core problem that was driving the overrepresentation, the poverty, poor housing, the substance misuse that flows from that, and uh, domestic violence. So we've had this whole trail of decades of, of mass removals of First Nations, Métis and Inuit kids from their families. And there's been all this time, there's been different people in the communities and leadership and elders pushing to get our laws affirmed again. And I entered into it late in the game in 1997 when we were working on something called the Joint National Policy Review, which is a bunch of First Nations folks and the government of Canada. We were documenting the underfunding of First Nations Child and Family Services. But our top recommendation was for there to be jurisdiction in Child and Family Services uh, to restore those laws. Well, fast forward 21 years, and then the federal government uh, decided to implement this thing called the Act Respecting First Nations, Métis, and Inuit Children, Youth, and Families. It's a mouthful. 
So no one really calls it that. We all call it C92. But really what it does is sets national standards that anyone who's working with a First Nations, Métis, and Inuit child in child and family services has to follow. Doesn't matter if you're non-Indigenous or Indigenous. And then it does another thing, and that is provides a pathway to affirm jurisdiction in child and family services. Now, I want to just kind of give you a prelude because I'm hoping Mary's going to talk about this. This act, I think, is, is, has many good things, but the act that Mary and colleagues were working on for First Nations, I think, was far stronger. She'll tell you about that one, and hopefully we can pull some of the good ideas she's worked on there into this one. But the Quebec government wasn't very happy with this. And so they decided they would take it to court and say that, look, no, 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 no. First Nations laws can't be uh, over top of the provincial laws. We, we, we in the provinces look after child welfare. So um, our laws should stand and the First Nations ones can't have supremacy, uh, overrule basically are the provincial laws. And then they put an argument about parliament, uh, parliament not being able to uh, really interpret Section 35, which is the First Nations, Métis and Inuit section of the Constitution that Naomi could talk a lot better about than I can. So this thing's been chugging along. There you <laughs> got Quebec challenging all of these things. And then you had Canada responding to it. We were intervening. Naomi was our counsel along with David Taylor and Alyssa Holland and the Quebec Court of Appeal. She just gave it to them along with other <laughs> Indigenous counsel. And um, the Quebec Court uh, agreed that most of it was constitutional, but there were two key sections, and Naomi will go over those, uh, that were they felt they were unconstitutional. So this all went over to the Supreme Court. And uh, there we were again. Naomi was there again, along with David Taylor and Alyssa Holland and acting for the Caring Society. And, and good old Spirit Bear was there, too. Um, and uh, the court heard it. And honestly, it took 14 months for them to make a decision. And I, I personally was worried. Like, I just thought, mm -hmm. oh, no, uh, you know. And let's face it, Pam, the Supreme Court hasn't always been very courageous when, when it comes to First Nations rights, mm -hmm. right? But anyway, the decision came down yesterday, 8-0, which means the entire court voted for First Nations, Métis, and Inuit kids. So this means those national standards stand. And it also really provides a, a pretty strong pathway to jurisdiction for First Nations, Métis, and Inuit people. So it was a good day for kids. And a real credit to everybody who's worked on it for decades and decades before I was ever on the scene. Well, that's fantastic. And I, I'm so glad that Naomi's here because she's like the superhero lawyer who is part of this amazing team. Yeah. And she'll be able to kind of get into some of the details. Um, but Mary, I want to talk to you first because, you know, long before this court case was ever a thing, uh, this isn't a new issue for First Nations, is it? I mean, First Nations have been grappling with all of these child and family issues for a long time and wanting to have their laws and jurisdiction respected. Am I right about that? Um, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, to go right back to it, and, and, they, and the justices did reference this, you know, what was the original intent of um, C-92? And that was really to stop the overrepresentation of our children in state and stranger care. 
uh, you know, uh, we're the ones that are saying, you know, we know what's best for our children. And in fact, we've always had the inherent right to take care of our children, but uh, we know we just haven't had the resources to do so. So it's important to think about this, this um, again, this is a reaffirmation that we are able to draft our own laws and implement implement our own laws within the realm of child and family. But we also have to really be um, uh, very, very mindful that I've always said this, we've always had the inherent right. We just haven't had the resources to breathe life into our own laws. So while we have this, um, you know, we had a good ruling yesterday, there's still a lot of work to ensure that we are making we we're making the best decisions and that we're ensuring that there are the resources to enact and to hold up our laws. And it's, it's been something, of course, that we've been working on, you know, for forever. Like, you know, as long as I as long as I can remember ever getting into politics in my teen years, um, you know, just our right to self-government, you know, that I am Gixon, I am Carrier. This is my territory. And at the very heart of it, and, and I, I say this when I talk to especially young people, the simple definition of jurisdiction is really, really just your ability to make decisions. And as our leaders, you know, as our parents, um, you know, and our grandparents and our aunties, that's what they did. They made the best decisions for us as children because we couldn't do that. We're just children. And then you think about all of the years of atrocities and the heartbreak of residential school colonization. Uh, we still inherently know what's best for our children. And so that's what this act reaffirms really is that our ability to make the best decisions for our children. That's amazing. I mean, I think that 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 point should have been made right from the outset. We've always known what's best for our families, you know, mm -hmm. all of our aunties and moms and grandmothers and all of the uncles and everybody that's a part of our family and community, all the elders, like we know what's best and that's just been interfered with for a long time. Mm -hmm. And so I want to take us back a little bit because there's probably people here on this stream right now or who will watch it after who has no idea what this court case actually said. So we know from Cindy that Quebec was thinking, you know what? We don't think we want First Nation laws to apply. We want our laws to apply mm -hmm. and we don't think the federal government has jurisdiction. Okay. And, um, you know, there was a court of appeal case and then it went to the Supreme Court of Canada. So uh, Cindy has mentioned that it was a unanimous decision. Sometimes you don't get a unanimous decision. You get some who are dissenting saying, no, we don't agree with that or certain parts of it. So Naomi, pretend I'm someone who knows nothing about this case and that I have not read the case. What's the core What's the core issues, the legal issues at play? And then what was the decision? Yeah, not only is it a unanimous decision, Pam, it's actually written from the court. And um, often they don't they don't do it that way. They they'll, you know, put their names who wrote it and often there'll be dissents and and, uh, you know, or different judgments. Um, and that's what I was expecting. Given the kind of questions that I heard, I thought, there could be at least three or four different judgments and I'd have to sort of figure out what happened by creating a flowchart. But I was really pleasantly surprised and shocked that it was from the court. Like that sends an important signal to me, you know, going back to, you know, uh, Cindy suggesting that they were being courageous here. I think they were and they were, I think they were, they were trying to say, because I think there's different view or some different views on aspects of this, but they came together and they decided to give this the most importance and to really show that they all supported the act and the, and the purpose of what the act was getting at. They decided to do it as the court. So they couldn't have sent a stronger endorsement of this type of law 
is the kind of law that we need to address uh, impacts of colonialism. They called it legislative reconciliation. And mm -hmm. basically, I mean, the whole case was about Quebec attacking this legislation um, from a couple of different uh, constitutional arguments. One being that the federal government just didn't have the uh, authority to pass a law that could impact on um, people in the province or provincial civil servants who are going to, you know, agencies in Quebec who, who have to follow the national standards. They're trying to say, no, that uh, you can't do that. Um, and the court said, of course we can. Of course, like under constitutional provisions, they found that the act in, um, you know, in its uh, what it was really about is about protecting Indigenous children and families. And they also said that you can't separate that, that point that Mary made and that Cindy made about we know what is best and the self-government component. All throughout the kind of appeals, they, uh, Quebec especially was always trying to kind of hive that off and make that kind of a separate issue and was even trying to like get the court to say, okay, maybe the national standards are okay, but the self-government part is a problem. And they said, you can't separate them. And we, we refuse to see this as part one and part two of the act. They all go together as part of this comprehensive sort of approach to protecting Indigenous children. And they said, actually, the, the act is about sort of three things, these national standards, um, um, self-government, and recognizing UNDRIP. And they said all three go together and they're all about protecting mm -hmm. Indigenous children and they, they work as a cohesive whole. So there was a, a really strong endorsement of the purpose of the act being that and then them saying that that is completely within the federal government's ability under the Constitution, it, its uh, powers and, and responsibilities in relation to um, Indigenous people under Section 9124 of the Constitution Act. So they said... That is um, definitely okay. And they also just address some of the arguments that Quebec was trying to make. Um, they, Quebec was trying to argue that um, the federal government wasn't able to recognize self-government in legislation, that it, this somehow amended the constitution because my, Back in the 90s, there had, uh, you know, there there was the constitutional attempt to uh, pass the Charlottetown Accord, which failed, which would have amended the Constitution to specifically recognize self-government as part of Section 35. And um, anyway, Quebec was trying to say that you 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 needed to amend the Constitution in order to recognize self-government, or you had to bring uh, the type of case, uh, you know, a, a litigation in court, and you couldn't the federal government couldn't recognize this in legislation and uh, the Supreme Court disagreed with that entirely and said of course they can and that's really key to this legislation and this opens the door for all kinds of more legislation like this where you know it's about implementing inherent rights it's about helping set out frameworks for the exercise of it and I think probably the thing that I think is a uh, well there's a couple of things in this decision that I think are really really important one is that they accept UNDRIP. They accept that UNDRIP applies in positive law and they don't even make a big deal about it. They But they just start from that point and that blew my mind. So there is uh, definitely that. But there's also like, if government wants to, government can and is allowed to pass legislation recognizing the inherent right to self-government. And once they do, they are bound. They are bound by the honor of the crown to act as if it exists and um, that that you know, and, and it binds them in how they um, they're going to behave in the future. So it's like it's it's telling them you have to not just 
talk the talk, you have to walk the walk. And I think there's a lot in there, especially around the questions that are still remaining about how implementation happens now going forward that we can draw on from this because they really send a strong signal that the honor of the crown is binding how the government is going to be acting and implementing this promise uh, of the recognition of self-government. So I'll leave it there. Uh, yeah. It's hard not to get excited when they always yes. talking, right? It's like, ah, it's the court. But, you know, for, for non-lawyers, those kinds of things are really, really significant. Um, and, and I don't know about you, but boy, the questions that I have coming in on social media are really, really smart questions. Like people want to know, okay, well, that's great. Well, this is what the court said. Obviously, there's a ages of the court decision, but you know, th that's the most key part of it. But I've got some questions um, and they have actually all of you different ones will go to you. I have one person, I have Robert saying, um, what impact does this have on the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal ruling? So Cindy, I don't know if that's a, if that's a you question, but maybe you can provide a response to that. Well, I think all of us can kind of cheer on that on that one. Well, you know, thank you, Robert, for your question. Uh, and as Robert probably knows, um, the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal still is holds jurisdiction over stopping the discrimination in First Nations Child and Family Services, and also in Jordan's principle. And uh, they hold jurisdiction on a second question: is to make sure it doesn't happen again. That's the big piece that like residential school survivors and 60s group survivors and youth and care want is stop hurting us. So, um, you know, we have uh, been um, in front of the tribunal um, for now 17 years. And uh, we have, uh, it's been pretty much eight years since the order and we've had over 20 non-compliance orders, and we just filed another one last uh, December, uh, just in December, that just passed on Jordan's principle, which I want to take a shout out because Jordan's principle is actually mentioned in the decision. Yes. And mm -hmm. that's a real honor to that little sacred spirit, Jordan River Anderson. So I think that decision, really, that walk the talk that uh, Naomi is talking about and the mention of Jordan's principle, uh, I, I think that's really going to help us at the tribunal. And it takes away a bunch of the excuses that Canada always puts out there for non-compliance. Uh, but I, I think it's, uh, I'm looking forward to kind of uh, filing that with the tribunal and uh, helping, uh, you know, help support the kids' arguments more to get justice in, in that process. Oh my goodness, Mary, what do you think? What could this possibly mean in going forward with that Canadian Human Rights Tribunal decision and Jordan's principle? Well, I think like if you look on the ground, so I'm the executive director of Child and Family Services. So, I, you know, I have, I work with the communities and I have social workers and whatnot. And when I say this, like, you know, and I, I don't mean to, to lose any of the honor and the strength of jurisdiction, but you know, our ability to make decisions. And we had, um, you know, that's why we went to the CHRT because of that inequity in funding on unreserved children. So we had like the, you know, great social workers, great staff, great community members, you know, building these great plans to protect that child. But we didn't have any resources or money to, to uphold those plans. Yeah. So when we think about C92, 
Uh, you know, C92, because, you know, both Cindy and I were in the legislative working group. Um, you know, I drafted the AFN uh, resolution to uh, get um, for, so that we could actually co-draft and they got changed to co-develop uh, uh, federal enabling legislation in child and family. So then we ended up going through to the National Advisory Committee and they provided input into what that resolution should say. We went across Canada. We got in, input into what the resolution should say. And so when that got passed, at the AFN, and then it was, the doors were open to really push the federal government to draft federal enabling legislation, which then came to BC 92. One of the things that we were always really cognizant of, and, and you know, we, we said we needed, we needed a funding component within C92, which we don't have. It's not mm -hmm. a cost neutral process. So it was really timely because we won the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal in 2016, we had money starting to flow at 2018, 2019, sometimes 2020. And then we have C92 at, at, in, um, 22, in 2020. So it really was important that these two of you look at them. You have to look at them. If you're a leader, if the chief in your community, and you're saying, well, you know what? I'm going to go and develop my own laws as per C92. Like, I'm gonna but you also need to build that capacity to uphold the laws. So it's really important that you look at the funding that is provided mm -hmm. through the CHRT, through those prevention funding, because, you know, that's what it is. We've always had our jurisdiction. We just haven't had the resources to breathe life into our own laws. So you have to look at it, um, uh, I, I think, in tandem. Mm -hmm. Such an important point, because, you know, sometimes you'll hear politicians say, oh, you can't just throw money at a problem. And I'm like, well, food costs money, water yeah. costs money, houses cost money, clothing costs money. So why is it that only when it comes to First Nations that resources don't matter? And I think that's that says a lot. And and Naomi, I know you probably have uh, something to say on this, too. But um, one of the related questions is, are these two cases, the tribunal case? and the Supreme Court of Canada case um, related in any way? And I'm, I'm sure you have an answer to that too. Yes. Um, I mean, the whole, I think we don't have Bill C-92 had we not had Cindy's, you know, the Caring Society mm -hmm. case, right? There's, it's all about what led to this. And, um, you know, uh, none of this would have happened without that pushing, right? Um, that could have been perhaps elaborated on a bit more in the SEC decision, but, you know, um, and we did emphasize uh, that um, as well. But like, you cannot lose sight of the fact of where this started and how we got here. And so the link between uh, Caring Society and C92 are so central. Um, so they they are linked. I, as I said, I do think they start to give us answers to or tools that are going to help us work towards um, actually holding government accountable on funding using the honor of the crown. We've been, you know, using human rights a lot as well, but we need we need multiple tools, not just one set mm -hmm. of tools. Um, and, that, mm -hmm. and so I think they help provide the groundwork for that. There are other decisions that are coming before the court. We're waiting on. Um, the Dixon case. So that's coming probably very shortly. But um, there's another case, and it's about the chronic underfunding of policing services in First Nations, particularly there's a community from Quebec. Um, and um, they brought a human rights tribunal case, and they were successful. That's being uh, judicially reviewed by Canada. But they also brought a, ca a case in the courts using fiduciary duty and honor of the crown. And um, they were successful at the Court of Appeal using Honor of the Crown. So that's going to the Supreme Court now. But you kind of feel like they're sort of laying the groundwork here mm -hmm. for 
bringing in this concept of honor the crown and the obligation, the duty to implement promises. They re reference that. And that's kind of the approach that was taken at the Court of Appeal. So I think these are moving together and these cases are all related. And I think I think the judiciary is starting to get the chron how chronic underfunding and how governments have been able to sidestep their obligations. And yet, Cindy, so great that you mentioned Jordan's principle. I wish I'd remembered to say that in my intro, but definitely. And I think there's a, a now a recognition that you can't, um, you know, th those kinds of maneuvers are not are not going to be acceptable. Um, and they also like one other part of the decision I think I just want to mention is just like there's a recognition that the way that the legislation is framed allows people to go at their own speed, to do the capacity building they need to do, to take the steps. And so uh, I really was happy to see that conversation about that in the decision. And so there's uh -huh. this pressure of needing to feel that you have to act because, and I think, I think that's there a lot too, especially like, oh, if we're going to have an election, but mm -hmm. I think we now can have like a little bit of a sigh of like, we can take the time that we need. And, and also, like, governments are going to have obligations, even if, like, you know, one government's mandate ends. Like, this is more than that. They are bound, honor-bound now, and the court has really sent a strong message about that. That's, it, it's just so phenomenal. It's in so many ways. You know, I can kind of see the web of things mm -hmm. that this case can potentially impact in the future. Um, but, Naomi, before I leave you, I have a very technical legal question. Um, must be a lawyer, but Sarah is asking me, yeah, but what if Quebec uses the notwithstanding clause? So okay. assuming <laughs> that everybody here does not know what a notwithstanding clause is, can yeah. you kind of tell us a little bit about that and then say, what if Quebec just says poo-poo on that decision? Sure. So um, the notwithstanding clause is a section, section 33 of the charter, um, which is part of the Constitution Act 1982, which gives a government the ability in certain cases with respect to certain charter rights, section two and section seven to 15, um, none of which are about Aboriginal rights. Um, so, uh, uh, these are all out. So, so section 35 is outside the charter. It's in part two of the constitution act. And so, um, basically the notwithstanding clause allows governments for a limited period of time to say, we, despite the rec the, despite these rights, uh, protections, we're going to override them without having to go through some of the other things that, you know, you normally would have to do, which is, you know, show that you've, uh, a justification. In any event, it doesn't matter because it doesn't apply here, right? So, so there, I want to put to bed any, any can, any thought that this had, the Quebec cannot rely on the notwithstanding clause here at all. End of story. That's, you know what? Thank you, Naomi, because of all the questions that got asked on all my different socials mm -hmm. over and over and over and over again, people were like, but yeah, Quebec's just going to use the notwithstanding clause. And one of the reasons for this live event is to just address these questions and make sure we have the facts and the law, right? So that's fantastic for everyone who's watching. Um, I have a question for you, uh, Mary. Someone must know you because when I put the notice out that Mary, you were going to be on this, they were like, oh, tell Mary that I have a question. Uh, so they must be First Nations too, because they said, I work with some First Nations um, who were very nervous to enact their own laws under Bill, well, under C-92 because of Quebec's challenge. 
Do you think that now that the Supreme Court of Canada has upheld C-92, that more First Nations will feel like it's safe to go ahead and enact their own laws, I guess, as long as they have resources? Uh, absolutely. Uh, I, I think so. And, and I always, um, not to be a Debbie Downer, but I always caution <laughs> nations to say, okay, and, and I always love this because Cindy always, uh, like when she asked this question, uh, you know, a while ago, and she well, Mary, what are the problems you're trying to solve with jurisdiction? And that's a huge, important question. And so there's this, you know, and I know there will be a rush, like, oh, we got to get this in. Who knows what's going to happen with government? Regardless of what we say, you know, people are going to be cautious because we've never had this opportunity. You know, when we get even like, you know, when we when we won the CHRT and all of a sudden we had money for prevention, it took a long time for our people mm -hmm. to start spending it because they were so cautious because it was like, what, what what's happening? We actually have money for this. We've never had, we've had zero dollars. So I understand our people and the caution that we have. But I would say that, um, you know, you don't need to be cautious. You know, you could start developing that. But the where you have to concentrate is to ensure that those safeguards and those uh, those those services that our communities need for our children to keep our children safe and thriving, they have to be there. That has mm -hmm. to be priority. Um, and I was just thinking about, you know, what Naomi was talking about, the, um, you know, the, the ability for us to sort of do that phase and approach. When we were at the legislative working group working on this, uh, one of the things that was really important um, important to us was actually let's look and you know Cindy and I and and the other part of the legislative working group really tried to bring the realities on the ground to say mm -hmm. okay let's consider this. So for me, like you know, we have so many nations that we're providing services to, and we know some nations have um, you know especially the ones that are closer to the urban setting perhaps. They have more resources and more capacity and, and as compared to a remote community. So we had to say, okay, well, we and we to push for this. You know, we want to phase an approach within C92. And that's really self-determination on the ground. So they the, the leadership, the nations can say, well, you know, we're, we don't absolutely have all these services. So we can't really do, say, protection piece or whatever. But it's up to them that they have this phase and approach. And I think if the listener is here to understand that you don't need to feel rushed build your capacity, build those resources, and then get going. And yeah. one of the things that I often say is, and, I, and this has been right since I started in this role like 19 years ago, good practice makes good standards, which makes good policies, which make good laws. Mm -hmm. So even if you're not going down that path, still remember that those good practices that work for your community, start collecting them, make them into a standard, make it into a policy, because when you're ready to get your laws, you'll already have had that foundational work ready to go. Wow, that should literally be a hashtag, hashtag <laughs> standards, hashtag policies, hashtag law, hashtag practices, because yeah, yeah, I mean, very succinctly, but but that's so true. And that's also reassuring to hear because I a lot of the questions I could tell were coming from First Nations. And one, mm -hmm. Cindy, um, was for you specifically, because um, this person works or, or heads, I guess, a child and family services agency, a First Nation one. Yeah. And she's asking, I guess, on behalf of anonymous other First Nation agencies, how this is going to impact them. Yeah, you know, like that's a that's a that's a really important question because that and that's another place where the CHRT and this jurisdiction piece link. I think it's really, really important that people understand the level of trauma that's out there that the First Nations agencies are trying to address. 
Sadly, in many communities, the harms from residential school and colonialism are so severe. And we're seeing um, children with uh, really high needs, a lot of them um, with substance misuse issues, or opioids, that kind of thing. And so these agencies have been on the front line of that and have just got the prevention resources to be able to do that. And I think that there is this, um, there's this reflex about, well, jurisdiction will fix all of this. So we'll just, we'll pull out of the agency as a First Nation and we'll start doing it on our own. That could, uh, that would be, I think, a mistake. You need to have all of that infrastructure in place in the first thing. You need to make sure that there's someone there to hold that child's hand, to hold that family's hand and that time of need. And it should be a seamless transfer. Um, with the agencies that are seeing some of, they may serve multiple First Nations and maybe one pulls out to be able to put down jurisdiction. Well, the federal government, in our view, should be there to support that agency to continue on with that good work. And one of the pieces we have to figure out is that if you're a First Nation, Métis or Inuit uh, government and you draw down jurisdiction, you are obligated to hold up those national standards in the act. And you're also obligated to hold up uh, non-discrimination under the K Human Rights Act. So against persons who might be gender diverse or persons with disabilities, and then also the charter. And so uh, we need to make sure that within those laws, there's access to justice for the people. So that if the laws go uh, don't have the desired effect, aren't able to hold up the national standards, that there's a way for individuals in those communities to step forward and get some measure of justice. I think that's a piece that's still evolving and the coordination of those laws within provinces and across provinces, that's something else that uh, still has to be done. Oh my goodness. Does it ever. And I think everyone's motto on this team is every child matters, no child left behind. We have to make sure no child or family is falling through the cracks of, is it the First Nation? Is it the First Nation child and family? Is it the provincial? Like what's happening? So I, I think that's all of those are really, really important. Um, I'm going to do a shout out to these people on the front lines. You know, mm -hmm. doing child yeah. welfare is really hard. And, um, you know, um, there's a lot of really dedicated and caring people working in First Nations communities all over this country and off reserve. And uh, really, you know, like, I just want to say thank you to those people, because I, I did that job for 15 years. That was the hardest job I've ever done. I can't imagine. I can't imagine. Um, I, I have someone here clearly from Alberta. Uh, Jennifer, who is from uh, an Alberta First Nation, says, okay, this case sounds great, but what if Alberta doesn't listen? Mm -hmm. I, and so I guess the underlying question there is, does this case apply to all of the provinces and territories, or is it just Quebec? Naomi. All right, I figured. <laughs> so this is, is it's a national law, and it's supposed to, and it, and it states that it's binding the federal government and the provinces. Um, and um, yeah, and so you know, Quebec's big claim is that it, it couldn't affect them, and the court said no, it does affect 
it, it does apply. It's national legislation and, it, and it's intended to apply. So no, provinces should not be now trying to say, well, it doesn't apply to us. It does apply to them. That's why the federal government has the jurisdiction to do this, is to protect um, Indigenous folks from provinces. You know, and, um, so uh, this is part of the role that that um, that is being played by by the act. Um, there's, you know, there there are there's a little bit of language in the decision, and I haven't had a chance to fully fully consider it through. They do have a couple places where um, there's a conversation, or or like just a line about um, how uh, you know, to some extent, perhaps. Uh, to what extent can the provincial government be bound on self-government? Uh, and I think, and it's really not clear exactly what they mean. I, it's me. I, I wonder if it's about funding, but it's, it's, mm -hmm. it's a weird sort of line and it's not given a lot of context, but you kind of got to consider it in the whole scope of the entire decision, which does say that this is federal legislation that binds all the provinces, right? So there's going to be some parts to figure out and there is going to be, bad behavior like i yeah. think there's a lot in here that it's going to so we can't just say oh it's perfect now mm -hmm. like there's still going to be uh, provinces who are going to be rogue and going to try to push the envelope i think and, and and unfortunately like i wish that wasn't the case but we do have some you know maybe some not good faith actors here um i think there's a lot to work with in the decision there may be things that we then have to like then mobilize behind and support and and push back um so you know i mean i like so I don't have a perfect answer for that. I think there's a lot to prevent the provinces from saying this doesn't apply, but there may be things that we may have to, again, look at, and, and there might have to be some fighting on, but there's a lot to work with. And I think there's a large network of us that are willing and, you know, we're really behind any communities that are going to, they're going to be sort of backed into a corner on this. Um, I'll, I'll just add to that, like sort of the provincial piece. So, and I can speak to BC and I'm definitely hearing this across the, the country, uh, so in British Columbia, there's Bill 38 that was passed um, uh, just over a year ago, and that's uh, the amendments and act uh, to um, you know support uh, self-government, and it's an it's an amendment to the, uh, the 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 provincial act. Now one of the things that that again, and I'm going to uh, oh God again being the Debbie Downer, be very cautious and be careful because mm -hmm. there's a fine line between jurisdiction and offloading. Yeah. And right now, as we know, so, you know, we won the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal. We were able to get prevention funding on reserve at, at the beginning at actuals. Now we have that money to actually do the work um, on reserve and we're able to build that capacity. However, on the provincial side, we don't have the same resources. So where, where we have in BCM is giving you an example. They have given the decision-making, or, uh, or if you will, the jurisdiction to leadership and communities to make decisions when it comes to where children are placed, for example. Are they agreeing that the child, could, you know, we can rescind a, a continued custody order? They can make these decisions, but there isn't any money that goes with that. So when Cindy was talking about, you know, like the um, the leadership, like there is that, that potential where our own leadership, because they don't have the resources, are making these decisions and deciding, oh, well, you're going to get this, but you, we don't have enough money for you. They're going to be put in that risky situation where they are discriminating against their own mm -hmm. potentially and where they're not able to meet the minimum national standards. So really have to be cognizant of these issues that are there on the face of it. The act looks wonderful, but there's so many different layers that you have to look at. And one of the things I'm really co concerned about is the liability that is going with mm -hmm. making those child and family decisions 
in community and our leadership where they don't have the supports or the expertise to make those tough decisions. Mm-hmm. 72% of kids in care are off reserve uh-huh. in First Nations communities. So that's a big piece is getting those provinces, uh, you know, to do a better job. Yeah, exactly. And we heard a lot of those concerns when it was Bill C-92. I was one of the ones that had some of those concerns because insurance companies were telling me, well, we're not going to insure First Nations if they take this over or the liability is too great. And so there was a lot of different characters have, like having a part of this conversation while this court case was going on. Um, Cindy, I have a question from us, Cindy. Who says, I don't Ooh, know. There's another one of us out there. You know? Yep. She says, I don't know if this is part of the Supreme Court of Canada case. Sorry if it isn't. But where are we with the foster care settlement? Oh, that would be the compensation uh, that came under the K Human Rights Tribunal. So um, where that's at is that the federal court has approved the settlement amount. Um, but there's an important document that is being kind of drafted. It's called a distribution protocol. And that document actually has some really vital stuff in there about the supports for people who are going to be claiming it and the process and how the money is going to flow. That's being taken out to First Nations leadership across the country for feedback. One of the pieces that I am concerned about is that Uh, You know, this is going to be a significant benefit, this compensation to many, many people. But none of us are are ignoring the fact that there are a lot of vulnerable communities and there are vulnerable community members. The supports in the final settlement agreement are limited to cultural and wellness supports. That's good. But we also know our wellness people and cultural people are working 24-7 already. And uh, we do need additional, I think we all need to be pushing the federal government as well as the provinces to ensure that there's adequate supports at the grassroots level across youth centers, domestic violence centers, all these different areas are going to need support, particularly over the first three years when this money rolls out. So uh, there's a website, uh, FN uh, Child Compensation. Uh, the whole thing is being overseen by the class action lawyers now. The Caring Society is uh, kind of finished our work at the tribunal, so we're not a part of the class action. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think that uh, that's something to keep an eye on for sure because that money should start to roll sometime in the fall of 2024 is the current estimate. Okay, so community should be getting ready. There's a process kind of like the compensation for Indian residential schools, Indian day schools, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and but this is of a big magnitude. Right. Um, and so I think the support should also be of a big magnitude mm-hmm. and uh, people should be starting to create community plans, emergency response plans. Uh, it, and if you have a small community to maybe group together with your neighbors and create a response plan so that you're able to support one another and make sure that service providers on the ground are know that this is coming and then can prepare for that. Yes, because sadly, there's always unscrupulous actors that yeah. come forward when they hear First Nations are getting settlements. So I'm, I'm, I'm hoping there'll be a lot of protections for sure. 
I think um, the one thing, Cindy, too, a really important point to note for the listeners is that this is for federally uh, children that were removed on reserve. Mm -hmm. um, and so the ones that have been removed off reserve um, are, aren't eligible for the compensation. Yeah. So theoretically, uh, and I know, okay, so you could have like a family that had six children, three were removed on reserve and the other three were removed off reserve. So um, it's, it's uh, you know, when we say to get uh, prepared, like the nations and the agencies and like all this information that needs to be out there, because I know I, I receive a lot of calls. Um, I also receive calls from, from telling them also that you were removed, you're, you're, a prov you're provincially billable, you're removed officer, so you're not eligible. That doesn't mean that there isn't another court case going, but yeah, it's something that's uh, I think the listeners should know. Yeah, Really important. There's going to be so, we're going to have to do, in fact, another one of these, probably a lot longer to, to answer some of those questions. Um, and I, I do have a question, but I have to say, we have a senator watching and Senator Kim Pate, who is also morally contracted to do events like this with me, and she does. She <laughs> says, so grateful to each of you for your vital work and for this session. You are all brilliant and fabulous. Yay, Senator Pate, you're next. Yeah, she does great work. And for people who don't yeah. know her, she's done a lot of work on the justice system. And uh, on other things as well, supporting uh, First Nations, Métis, and Inuit peoples in a whole array of areas. But she's brilliant. She she is phenomenal. Um, now, Naomi, mm. I have this question from Jack. And Jack says, when you were talking about the case, you said that the court mentioned that they recognized UNDRIP as positive law. What is positive law? And is this a good thing? <laughs> yes. Yes, it is a good thing. They mm -hmm. the, they essentially recognize that the UNDRIP Act that was passed by the federal government in 2019 uh, confirms that it applies in Canadian law. That's what I meant when I said positive law. Sorry, that's a bit of a legal term. But essentially, that's what the court, the court recognizes that it applies in Canadian law. And there are different ways that UNDRIP applies. Um, UNDRIP can apply as an interpretive guide to existing domestic laws, including Section 35, parts of the Charter, or even a statute. You can, it, you, there are ways to interpret the law so that it's more consistent. You could have two possible interpretations of, of, a, of something, and one could be more consistent with UNDRIP. So the fact that UNDRIP applies means that you should pick the, um, the interpretation that is consistent with UNDRIP. That's one way. The other way is the way that we see what C92 is. C92 is an effort to put into, uh, to implement and put in practice the, the requirements around self-determination and the rights of families um, and the rights of children that are in, uh, embodied within UNDRIP. So it's actually the government trying to pass laws to implement UNDRIP. So that's that's the second way. So um, uh, what the court is affirming is that it applies both ways um, in that, you know, we use it to interpret existing law, but the governments are also using it to um, uh, uh, to make new laws that are more consistent with UNDRIP. So the court's affirming both of those things. That's awesome. And I, just so you know, there's comments being made from William. Thank you all for your conscious work. Um, you've got people, Dark Native, saying, yay, this is great. You've got Jody saying 8-0 as if it was a hockey game, but that's a good <laughs> reference. Yay, that's awesome. 
Um, you've got like so many people here saying, oh, and we've got another one, Victoria King. We love you, Cindy Blackstock. We, we always get those ones. Um, and of course, there's lots of hearts, lots of positive comments, people being really, really thankful that we're doing this uh a session. And of course the, the questions keep coming in and Mary, maybe I'll start with you, but I think I'm going to ask all of you about this because people are wondering, um, is there anything bad about this decision for first nations? Well, I, th I think it, um, I, I don't know, like, I, I think it could have gone further on the section 35 piece, but you know, I think it could have been a little bit uh, clearer on the paramountcy, but for all, like, I, I think, you know, as, as reviewing again this morning on the plane, and you know, and I was I was so happy, you know, no, Naomi was referenced in there, and just all the references, and, and it's just it's just a good decision. I think um, I honestly, I was telling you like the night before, I I, I barely slept because I really started thinking about the realities of what would happen, and I thought, do I really want to go? Like like we're we're getting it's going to set us back like, you know, years and years and years. And how long was it going to take us to get to this place where we have this ability to, to draft and implement our own laws? And I thought, I don't think I have the stomach or the backbone anymore if we lose just that fight. <laughs> so it is a really positive, um, a really positive ruling. So I, I, at this point, I'm just so happy that we, we got the positive ruling that, you know, that again, uh, you know, the only negative thing I think is, is, is that we have to ensure that, of course, that Canada fully, um, fully, fully recognizes it, fully, you know, takes this this, this ruling to and, and fully implements it and it's and it's true breadth. And, and what I think the justices really wanted, um, you know, it, it is a really wonderful, like when I when I read it and, and uh, you know, just how they, they really reference, you know, what, what was the intent of the act, right? Um, so I, I can't say uh, anything is super negative, but I, I just think that uh, moving forward, we have to be very cautious. Well, Pam, you're muted. <laughs> I've committed the gravest of errors. And it's so funny for everyone watching. I was typing saying, just leave your microphones on so we don't have to do the, hey, you're muted thing. And guess who did it? Pam Bolmeter. Um, but, but just to say, we have Lita saying, every child matters. Every First Nation matters. So there's a lot of support here. Cindy, I'm going to ask you the same question. If you think that there's anything bad that might come out of this case. I know we've all just, you know, skimmed it. We probably haven't had the fine tooth comb yet. At least I haven't. But can you see anything that's potentially bad out of the decision? Well, I just say with the Supreme Court cases that sometimes governments don't implement them. And uh, that's been a challenge. We've seen so many good First Nations wins. And then uh, the government uh, just uh, won't do it. it. And we've seen it in a caring society case uh -huh. at the tribunal with our, our First Nations colleagues, AFN, Kuhn, Nan, uh, and, and the commission. Like we've, been, we've been trying to get them to comply. And what my experience has been is that Canada will violate the law. It will um, not abide by legal orders as long as there isn't significant consequences for them. And uh, I think that that's the thing we have to watch. And mm -hmm. uh, something I said yesterday, this is good news, but nothing changed in the lives of children today. That's so, so important to bring it back mm -hmm. down. Right down to the kids. And then the other piece, too, is that, you know, this idea of jurisdiction, it comes with the responsibility. 
And we can't just take over jurisdiction and mess it up in a serious way. It is possible to do worse, is what I'm saying. Uh, so uh, we have to do better for our kids. And that's why Mary's caution is so important about taking it slow, making sure that you have the people on the ground to respond to those needs that I talked about, the poverty, the poor housing, the substance misuse, the mental health. And, uh, you know, there's some other stuff we got to embrace what hurts in our communities, sexual abuse, sexual exploitation, physical abuse, domestic violence. Those are real issues. So let's build up the capacity so those laws can really translate into children being not only being safe, but children thriving in their families and being proud of who they are. That's the opportunity we have. So we have to treat it as if that's a sacred opportunity. And that means we have to do our due diligence and plan in a very strategic way so that our kids and families are set up for success. Thanks, Cindy. Um, Naomi, this was the second, I think, the second most sent question to me. You know, uh, it's is there anything bad out of the Supreme Court of Canada case? Like, and I think they mean like legally bad. Is there any kind of, is there anything that they said that's really hurtful to First Nations? No, um, I, I don't think so. I mean, I think, so they took a different approach from the Quebec Court of Appeal, which did find, I mean, so, so the C Court of Appeal said, recognize a generic inherent right to self-government particularly in the area of child welfare. But then they also sort of use that to say, like, the paramountcy provisions in the act were unconstitutional because it, it didn't recognize the role of the provinces enough and needed to balance that. So this is a, an approach that is a bit different. So it doesn't go so... I said we don't have to decide the inherent right to, to self-government issue, like, is it part of Section 35? But, but... They do say we don't have to go there because on a reference, you really shouldn't go that far. You shouldn't create a bunch of more questions, which is what they were kind of suggesting the Court of Appeal did. But they said something else that's really interesting, though. They're, they're like, Canada has accepted Section 35 as part of this act and self-government being it. And Canada cannot act any differently. It is bound now, unless it repeals the legislation, to act as if, you know, it is real. And they even talk about that, that it is it is real because the federal government it says it's real in the law. And and but they do say that, you know, there's they also say it can be found under Section 35 or they don't go that far, but they leave us a lot of little breadcrumbs, which, you know, for for lawyers in the future to say like they, they do sort of suggest that they're, you know, in the next case that might put this forward, that they, they, you know, it is likely that they're going to find it in some areas for sure. And the fact that UNDRIP is there, I think also um, will allow for uh, thinking about that um, in new ways. And I think the same thing on Paramountcy too, like they kind of marry, they, they sort of uh -huh. said like, it's up to the judges. And so uh -huh. I know that your counsel was making some arguments that we can't just take the same approach. And I think I'm kind of more in line with Scott on that more than I probably was at the time. But I do think that there's got to be a bit of a different approach. But so I think they've also sort of left that open, right to the future. Yeah. And it's like different making different arguments. But I don't think that those are like bad things. I think that th there's there's path pathways to those that are in the um, in the decision. I do think there's like I said before a little bit of wiggle room they've given the provinces that I'm not entirely. Sh I think it's narrow, but I'm not sure exactly what it means. 
that's the, probably the thing that gives me the most sort of concern. And it's mm-hmm. just like a couple of throwaway lines in two paragraphs. And I'm a little worried how it might get like taken, but I think so more thought on that and more analysis on that. Like I've got a, I, I'm trying to work it through in my head, but, but, but we know that provinces are bound generally by the act. So, you know, um, I'm, you know, there's more thinking on that, but I don't, there's nothing like obvious, there's, but there's so much good, I think that is in here too. And I just, if I can mm-hmm. make one more p- comment, that's something I haven't said yet. They use this metaphor throughout and it comes from a, a legal text that John Burroughs and a bunch of awesome scholars were a part of. And they call, it's called braiding legal orders. And they talk about how we are now in sort of this time where reconciliation means braiding indigenous laws, um, undrip and uh, state laws to all together and that they have to be sort of harmonized together. And that's like groundbreaking. They have never gone so far as to suggest that that's what reconciliation means. And they see C92 as, as part of that. And, but I think it also, you know, come to some of the concerns that Cindy was raising, like UNDRIP really emphasizes uh, the fact that human rights, international human rights have to be respected too. So it's, um, it's, it's really presenting, I think, interesting frameworks for now thinking about how we're moving forward with these different legal orders coexisting together. And it is a lot of work that we're going to have to do to figure that all out, but it sure is exciting. It is. It is exciting. Um, we have about two minutes left, so I want to give you each a minute to kind of think about what could be next steps for everybody involved. Cindy, what do you think? What's next well, step? Well, our non-compliance order is percolating <laughs> along at the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal. And Canada, uh, before this decision, was opposing uh, us. And uh, we have hearing dates on June 3rd and 4th. I think it's going to be interesting to see if they actually uh, step in line. That'll be an early indicator of whether they're really serious about walking the walk. And for everybody, just go to fnwitness.ca. You can keep up to date on the tribunal. And I'm sure, you know, Pam, we're going to have to come back and talk to people about that noncompliance. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Just a one off on that one. What about you, Mary? Next steps. Well, I think there's me next steps on like with my agency, my nation, you know, we're just going to continue, the, continue the work that we're doing and drafting our own laws. Um, and, um, and I guess, uh, you know, it's really to ensure that Canada is, you know, fully implementing, uh, you know, implementing um, the, the, the case here. But I always think that, uh, you know, and, and Cindy says this, you know, well, how did the children's lives change today? Mm-hmm. But just to really step back and, and remember why was this act created in the first place? And that was to better the lives of our children and make sure that no, we don't lose any more of our children. So the next step is really to think about how your own traditional laws did that mm-hmm. um, and to start, you know, start collecting that, you know, start writing them down, start doing, you know, start, start doing that work. Collect all the best practices that you know that works in your community. And I think those are some of the next steps, because at the end of the day, we know that positive change or negative change, when there is significant change in administration and a reorganization, that's when children fall through the cracks yeah. and ends up in child death. We know the research has shown that. So when you're transitioning from, um, you know, provincial law and you're going to your own laws, you got to make sure that's seamless. You got to make sure that you're, what you're practicing now is the way you're going to practice and your own laws are, are enacted. Yeah. Such important advice. No one can fall mm-hmm. through the cracks. Uh, yeah. Naomi, next steps? 
for me, like personally, I mean, I think uh, I love this idea of these braiding of legal orders and, and, mm-hmm. and on Mary's point about, you know, um, how important uh, reconnecting with uh, whether we call them traditional laws, but our indigenous laws, but working with, you know, there, there are some amazing work and shout out to the Waikotuan Lodge and Hadley yeah. Freeland and Corn Lightning Earl, but they're doing some great work to help communities actually draw out laws that are legitimate based on their, on their stories and their language and their practices. And so there's some great work that you can actually like bring these folks in to kind of help communities mm-hmm. sort of think about ways to reconnect with those laws. If they're not, you know, if you, if you're not connected as much with them as you'd want to be and how to work them in because I think they're so key because again we we knew how to do this right and we had some wonderful ways about taking care of our our people and it's it's so important to reconnect with that so I'm I'm really excited about seeing the work that will fuel this work um, as well as bringing in and braiding in UNDRIP and that's I've been working on that on a PhD but like how UNDRIP is the framework and working like things with like international human rights standards as a basis along with our indigenous laws to sort to see the way forward. I'm really excited about all that. Well, it looks like um, we've got a lot of to do. It looks like the viewers, you've got De-, De Quincy saying thank you for such an informative discussion. We've got more love from Mira. We've got thank you for hosting an enlightening and informative discussion. Make you make me feel optimistic. We're trying, <laughs> you know, so we know all of the bad stuff that's out there, but we're trying. Uh, Harmony's saying you're all amazing. TJ saying, thanks for making this accessible, which is the w- what we were trying to do. So this wasn't a legal discussion per se. This was really just trying to make it accessible to people who are not lawyers or whoever doesn't read court cases. And we've got <laughs> JM saying, I'm cautiously optimistic. And JM again saying, love to see it. So thank you all for, for taking the time out on a Saturday night to join us live. Tell all your friends, family, community members that this will be live or sitting forever on YouTube. You can watch it. I'll make sure to put it on my podcast. We'll probably do a part two, maybe a part three, four, five, because they're all contractually obligated to me now. So I'm going to get, I'm going to get Naomi for undrip. I'm going to get Mary for the practical and Cindy, you know, we've got to talk about this non-compliance. And if Senator Kim is still on here, we are going to do another one on over-incarceration and the wrongful prosecutions of Thank you, everybody, for caring. Spread the word. We've got this. We've got this in hand. First Nations and Indigenous peoples, we never give up. We're going to win all of these little wins. We need to celebrate everything in between. So thank you again. Thanks, all of you, Cindy, Mary, and Naomi. I can't wait to do this again. Thanks so much, Pam. Thanks, Naomi, Mary. What an honor. Thank you. Thanks to all of the Warrior Life podcast listeners, YouTube watchers, closed caption readers. I really appreciate your support for my show. And guess what? Friends, supporters, and allies, I have big news. I have a new feature for all of my content. I now have a page on SpeakPipe. That's an app where you can record a short question or comment about anything that you hear on any one of my podcasts, my YouTubes, my TikToks, my live events, or anything you read on my blogs. So if you listen to Warrior Life, Warrior Kids, or Criminals on Patrol, any of those podcasts, this feature can be used for any of them. 
I will post the link in the description box below where you can record your short question or comment. It has to be under 90 seconds. And please be sure to say which specific content that you're referring to. And as always, if you like this episode, please consider supporting my podcast by subscribing, liking, sharing, and giving good reviews. And if you want more information about any of these issues, please check out my website at pampalmeter.com. Till next time, keep living a warrior life. Walalia. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting my podcast. Your donations help me keep the Warrior Life podcast open access to everyone and free from those annoying ads. And it's super simple. Just click on the link below to sign up for a Patreon monthly or yearly subscription or click the links for the Buy Me A Coffee app or the Kofi app to make one-time contributions. And if you belong to an awesome community group, business, or organization that's committed to Indigenous reconciliation, consider sponsoring an episode or two, or as many as you like. Thank you for helping me lift the voices of Indigenous warriors doing phenomenal things to help make our world a better place.